It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. The border is closed. The border is secure. The border is secure. Uh, The border is closed. The border is secure. And the border is not open. We have... A secure border. I can tell you the the border is secure. By what measure is it secure now, sir? So there there is not a common definition. The president has done more to secure the border and to deal with this issue of immigration than anybody else. He really has. Uh, We're certainly uh, doing a lot more to secure the border. As you know, the president has done everything that he can. Uh, He's done that alone uh, without the help of Republicans. Why aren't you guys stopping the flow at the border? We are stopping the flow at the border. Secretary Mayorkas, do you continue to maintain that the border is secure? Yes, and we are working day in and day out to enhance its security. The removal of Title 42 does not mean the border is open. The border is secure, but we also have a broken immigration system. We have done a lot of work here to fix this system. I think the message um, uh, uh, is, in fact, not to come uh, to the border. I don't think the more than 1.5 million people who have been removed or expelled uh, from the border would consider the border open. Somebody walks into Texas or Arizona unvaccinated, they're allowed to stay. Why? But that's not how it works. Like, we actually, no. I know that that's not what you guys want to happen, but that is what what is happening. But that's not, it's not like somebody walks over and (laughs) that's not, that's That's not how. That's exactly what's happening. That's uh, Newsbusters. I'm Mark Levin. It's a thrill to be back. But there's more, Mr. Producer. Cut 14, go. It is my testimony that the border is secure. We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. We have taken unprecedented action over the past year and a half to secure our border. And we have a process in place to manage migrants at the border. We're working to make sure it's safe and orderly and humane. The border is closed. We agree that uh, the border is secure. We're executing a comprehensive strategy to secure our borders. One of our highest priorities is to ensure that we have a secure border. And that is what we are doing. The border is secure. And there's more. So the border was secure three weeks ago, four weeks ago. That was the Democrat talking point, the talking point from the White House, the talking point from the DHS secretary, both under sworn testimony and otherwise. It was the talking points from every single Democrat in the House and in the Senate, the talking points of the Democrat Party media. The border is secure. Now, all of a sudden, if you don't pass this bipartisan legislation, the border won't be secure. First of all, let's look at the lineup. You have Mitch McConnell, who's an open borders guy. And of course, Chuck Schumer, who is a lawless reprobate. You have Joe Biden, I'll get to him in a minute, who has intentionally burned down the border and anything that secures our country. Then you have the usual rhinos. You have Karl Rove out there with his whiteboard and his seven points, swearing that he actually read the bill. No, he didn't. I read the bill. He didn't read the bill. You have other Republicans who've gone out there and have made fools of themselves, lying about what's in this bill, and I challenge anybody to try and read it. 
First of all, it's very thorough, very bureaucratic. You can see the tricky language. What they do is give with one hand and take with the other. They would effectively legalize the millions and millions of people who've come into the country illegally. This 5,000 a day, they say, well, that doesn't mean 5,000 a day are allowed in. That's the threshold. After that, we have an emergency. You can close the border. Ladies and gentlemen, nobody's supposed to come into this country who's coming in illegally. Nobody. What do you mean 5,000? The Secretary of Department of Homeland Security under Obama said over 1,000 they had a disaster on their hands. Now 5,000 is the threshold. This is how Washington works. This is how our ruling class elites work. This is how they work inside the Beltway where their policies are not felt as they are in the rest of the country. And they're lying to you. I want you to listen to this. You don't have to hear the substance of every point, but I want to show you what Joe Biden did. What Joe Biden did when he became president of the United States. And this is dated February 2nd, 2021. A week and a half after he became president from the Center for Migration Studies. Biden has issued the following immigration-related executive orders and administrative policy changes since his first day in office. Proclamation on ending discriminatory bans on entry to the United States, first day in office. Executive order on the revision of civil immigration enforcement policy and priorities, where he guts immigration enforcement policies. That was his first day. Preserving and fortifying deferred action for childhood arrivals. That's DACA, which is an illegal administrative act. There's been no statute for it. He did that on his first day. Proclamation on the termination of emergency with respect to the southern border of the United States and redirection of funds diverted away from the border wall. January 20, 2021. So he says, I need emergency powers. He has them. He had them. He signed an executive order to kill them. He can sign one to revive them on his very first day. Still on his first day. Executive order and ensuring a lawful and accurate enumeration and and apportionment pursuant to the Deciano census. In other words, counting illegal aliens. More. Let's see here. Memorandum. U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021. On his first day. On his first day, DHS statement on the suspension of new enrollments in the Migrant Protection Protocols Program. Proclamation on the suspension of entry as immigrants and non-immigrants of certain additional persons who pose a risk of transmitting coronavirus disease, January 5, 2021. Executive order in creating a comprehensive regional framework to address the causes of migration. He's the cause. To manage migration through North and Central America, to provide safe and orderly processing of asylum seekers at the United States border, February 2nd. Now, these titles are misleading. That should be called the rubber stamp executive order. Come in line, we rubber stamp you in. Executive order restoring faith in our legal immigration system and strengthening integration and inclusion efforts of new Americans. I don't know, February 2nd. Executive order on the establishment of an interagency task force on reunification of families. 
Executive order on rebuilding and enhancing programs to resettle refugees and planning for the impact of climate change on migration. Memorandum for the Secretary of State on the Emergency Presidential Determination on Refugee Admissions for Fiscal 2021. In other words, you pretty much have to say you're a refugee trying to leave a country that persecutes you and you're in. They know the language. A proclamation of the suspension of entry as non-migrants of, of certain additional persons who pose a risk of transmitting coronavirus. You might recall they lifted that as fast as they could. That Rule 42. Memorandum for the Secretary of State on the Emergency Presidential Determination on Refugee Admissions for Fiscal Year 2021. Now the proclamation on ending discriminatory bans on entry to the United States January 2021 it left certain restrictions on immigrant visas for nationals coming from Burma, Eritrea, Iran, Venezuela, Kyrgyzstan, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Tanzania, and Yemen. Trump had put a limited ability to get these, uh, these visas on these countries. U.S. embassies and consulates of those countries can resume visa processing, must ensure that pending visa and waiver applicants are not prejudiced by the previous bans. From 2017 to 2020, former President Trump issued a series of travel bans preventing net nationals of Muslim-majority and select African countries from entering the United States. Biden rescinded the travel bans uh, effective immediately in his proclamation. He characterized the bans as a stain on our national conscience. No, he's a stain, not only in his depends, but on our nation. The initial travel ban... Suspended the issuance of visas to nationals from Iran, Iraq, Sudan, Syria, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen for 90 days. These are all hotbeds of terrorism. That's why Trump did it. And that is a stain on our national conscience? Now, executive order on the revision of civil immigration enforcement policies and priorities, January 20, 21. It revised immigration enforcement policies and priorities and rescinded the Trump administration executive order, which called for the prompt removal of all undocumented immigrants living in the United States and withdrew federal funding from so-called sanctuary states. Biden's executive order directed relevant federal agencies to issue new guidance about immigration enforcement policies. In other words, he killed deportation. Killed it. Those who have engaged in or suspected of terrorism or espionage or whose arrest is otherwise necessary to protect national security. In response to Biden's executive order, David Pekoski immediately issued a memorandum directing DHS agencies to review enforcement policies and provide recommendations. Uh, who were not U.S. citizens before November 1, who voluntarily waive any rights to remain in the United States, who acting ICE director determines must leave the country. How do you even know that, that which is the point when people are coming in illegally over the border and you're not vetting them? That's the problem. And the termination of the emergency with respect to the southern border, which he did on day one, Biden halted construction of the wall along the border, stated the funds for border wall construction would be reallocated following a review of construction contracts. In April 2021, Defense Department announced it's coordinating with interagency partners to cancel border wall project contracts. That's what he did. Let's see. Executive order 
on ensuring a lawful and accurate enumeration and apportionment pursuant to the decennial census. So, of course, he's very worried on day one that all immigrants, mostly and including illegal immigrants, are counted for the distribution of congressional districts. It goes on. This U.S. Citizenship Act, January 20, Biden endorsed the U.S. Citizenship Act, memorializing his commitment to modernize the U.S. immigration system. Done a fantastic job. Bill would represent the most sweeping immigration reform package since 1990. This is where they won't vote on my comprehensive immigration reform. He had the bill ready on the day he was inaugurated. Now, what does this require, this, this bill that he keeps saying that the Republicans wouldn't support? Provides an eight-year pathway to citizenship for approximately 11 million undocumented immigrants, a.k.a. illegal immigrants. Physically present in the United States on or before January 1, 2021, will be able to apply for temporary... Lo- let, let, me, let me just cut to the chase, America. The people in Washington, D.C. have destroyed citizenship. They've destroyed security on the border. They've destroyed American sovereignty. They've allowed 10 million people into this country who are not vetted, many of whom are would be or will be criminals, terrorists likely. They've made the drug cartels richer than they've ever been. They've created havoc in our streets, death with fentanyl and other toxic drugs. You can see what they're doing to our schools, our health care system, our parks, our communities. You can see the drag on resources, America. There's seven and a half billion people outside the United States. What if one billion, two billion, three billion want to come here? What Biden did, with the help of his Obama apparatchiks, is Cloward and Piven, two Marxist professors. What do they do? They talk about overwhelming the system. He's overwhelmed the system. Mitch McConnell and the boys are too ignorant and stupid about this Marxist movement and what's happening to our country. This guy Lankford is a complete, you know, deer in the uh, headlights guy. They're negotiating with the people who've perpetrated all this. Donald Trump says when he comes in office, he wants to track down a lot of these people and deport them. This law would essentially prevent that. This wall, this spe- they spend no real money on a wall. They give it in one hand and take it with the other, despite what Karl Rove's whiteboard says in his talking points from McConnell and the boys. It would be nice if our Congress would spend this much time on American citizens, on American security, but they won't. The same party that said three weeks ago the border is secure, the same man who burned down our immigration laws, now they say they have a special law to secure the border. No, they don't. It's a special law for 10 million people effectively to get amnesty and millions more to come. There's your bottom line. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. 
It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. I want to talk to my Christian brothers and sisters for a moment. Of course, everybody can listen in. From carlton.ca. The importance of the land of Israel in Christianity. Christianity. The emergence of Christianity, these important events have been marked by the creation of important religious sites, which can be illustrating the example of a visit to Helena, mother of Emperor Constantine. Helena arrived in the Holy Land of, in 326 CE to identify the sites associated with the sacred stories of the life of Jesus and other biblical characters. Upon identification, some of these sites were recognized by the building of magnificent churches, such as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was built on Emperor Constantine's orders after Helena identified its site as the exact spot in which Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. As more of these spots were identified by individuals over the following millennia, more and more holy sites began to spring up in the Holy Land, Crusader sites in Akko and Caesarea that emphasized the importance of the land and its sites to Christianity. Part of the Crusades, Christians sought to take back the Holy Land and put it under their control to secure the land and Christian access to the important holy sites that existed there. The Christian Crusade came about because of the earlier Muslim Crusade. That's, it was a response to it. The land of Israel has always been important for Christians over the centuries. Always. Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Nazareth. Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. And the land of Israel continues to be important to Christians today. Christian pilgrimage compromises approximately 700,000 individuals per year. Almost a quarter of all the visitors to Israel. And it's increasing every year. Increasing every year. Christianity was born in modern day Israel. Before that, Judaism was born in modern day Israel. As I said, and as you know, Bethlehem is Jesus' birthplace. It's now controlled by the Palestinians. The Temple Mount 
which was built by the Muslims, on top of the site of the first temple, so it was purposely built there, is in many ways a no-Jewish go-zone. And yet it's one of the holiest sites in Judaism. The history of Judaism, the history of Christianity, abounds in the state of Israel. When you look in your Bible, when you read your Bible, the holy sites, the great prophets, others who came before us, this is where they lived. This is where they were born. This was their home. Always under attack by outsiders. Always. Yet the Christians survive. And the Jews survive. Will they survive in the Middle East this time? Will they? With Iran on the precipice of getting nuclear weapons? With the Islamists who will do nothing to stop their effort to slaughter anybody who disagrees with them? Jew, Christian, or even Muslim who doesn't join in with them? On October 7th and now, you see the closest ever to the destruction of the state of Israel and all those ancestral holy sites that the Jewish people in Israel are protecting. They're all subject to being destroyed like the Taliban destroyed all the sites in Afghanistan. The Buddhist sites, thousands of years old. Do we want all these things destroyed? Why should our faith be pushed out of the Middle East? By Islamist movements who make false claims of ownership of the land. Where are all the Jews and Christians in Iraq? Where are they? Where are all the Jews and Christians in Saudi Arabia? Where are they? Where are all the Jews and Christians in ancient Persia, a.k.a. Iran? Where are they? The overwhelming majority have been pushed out. Pushed out of their homes. Their ancestral homes. The one place where they're protected is the state of Israel that has lost men and women defending those holy sites from Palestinian terrorists and terrorist regimes that surround it. Israel is surrounded by regimes and terrorists who want to destroy it, destroy their faith, destroy the holy sites of Christians and Jews. Surround it. Now what does this have to do with anything? Well, ladies and gentlemen, 
people are putting their lives on the line to protect these sites. They're dying to protect these holy sites for Christians and Jews. Dying. Police, IDF soldiers. The Palestinians claim ownership of Bethlehem. Based on what? Based on nothing. Jerusalem, Hebron, where the patriarchs and most of the matriarchs are born. They claim ownership of that. They claim ownership of Judea and Samaria. Judaism was born in Judea. In a little town called Shiloh. Long before there was a city of David or Jerusalem. The Palestinians claim that too. It's a tiny country. Seven million Jews. Tiny geography. Surrounded by tens of millions of enemy. With increasing levels of technologically advanced weaponry. Which brings me to my point. The Speaker of the House, Johnson, is a very religious man. He's a born-again evangelical Christian. He knows the history of this part of the world. You may not always agree with him, but he's a very decent man. He sees what Schumer, who is not a decent man, and McConnell, who is not a decent man, and Hakeem Jeffries, who is not a decent man, all these reprobates are doing creatures of politics in Washington to try and jam up support for Israel by tying it to other countries, by tying it to the border, demanding that there's going to be support to give additional munitions to Israel to defend itself and defend these holy sites, that they vote for a hundred an $18 billion bill when Israel represents about $14 billion of that bill. Speaker Johnson says, you know what, I've had enough of this. That war is ongoing. The Biden administration is undermining the state of Israel. They need munitions. They're going to run out of munitions. While facing these terrorists, these terrorist regimes who claim all these holy sites, Jew, Christian, and the entire territory from the river to the sea, they claim. To wipe out the biblical history, the biblical sites of Abraham, of Jesus, and all of them. The last time the Palestinians and the Jordanians controlled Jerusalem, they destroyed synagogues and other holy sites. Destroyed them. Because they mean nothing to Islamists. Nothing. And they were nothing more to blow out the biblical history of the Jews and the Christians. Speaker Johnson says this is a little country, they're our ally, they were attacked. There's no guarantee they're going to survive. They don't have a massive defense industry, there's not enough people. But the weapons they have, they put the damn good use. 
but they're running out of munitions. And Johnson says, I'm not going to play this game with the Democrats anymore. I'm going to break out the Israel munitions bill and have a vote on that bill apart from all the rest. And by the way, when funds are provided for munitions for a country like Israel, the money never leaves the United States. Munitions that are manufactured by our companies, built by our American citizens, and then the end product, the munitions, are sent to Israel. Basically, they have a, a tab with the Treasury and the Pentagon created by Congress. There's not billions of dollars flowing into Israel. It doesn't work that way. So Johnson says, look, we're not going to be able to break this, this logjam with these Democrats. So let me break out the bill. Because this is a special case for our ally Israel that provides us with intelligence, that provides our forces with defense whenever they can. And by the way, has a technolo- technological sector second to none, even in many respects, more advanced than our own. And they share that with us for free. They even advance our own weapons. Since the Iron Dome was the Patriot missile system, and they, they perfected it. And they gave that technology to us, because they're our ally. Because we support them, and they support us. And he says, all right, let's vote on it. And then the Freedom Caucus says, no, not so fast. Not so fast. That $14 billion needs to be offset with other spending cuts. Johnson says, but the Democrats are not going to go for that. They can't stop spending. Every dollar is not the same. A dollar for a pork barrel program in, in Texas or a pork barrel program in Florida, or a pork barrel program in Virginia, in some of these districts where we have these deficit hawks, and I'm a deficit hawk, a dollar for so-called climate change and electric vehicles and non-government organizations. You know, we spend $6.5 trillion, so much of it for crap redistributing wealth, Expansion of welfare, all the rest of it. $14 billion. So Israel can defend itself and defend these holy sites. On behalf of all Christians and Jews, as well as other people of goodwill. And the Freedom Caucus says no. No. Because you need to offset that $14 billion and we have a $34 trillion debt. They're actually wrong. We have a $300 trillion debt when you consider unfunded liabilities. But the Democrats are not going to go along. First of all, they don't support Israel. Some claim they do, but as a group, they support Hamas. Biden is undermining Israel with Iran. So it turns out the United States, directly and indirectly, is providing more funds to Iran, Hamas, the PLO, and Hezbollah than munitions to Israel. So Israel is having to defend itself against American money that has been used to arm up their enemies. 
And then when it comes to Israel, now we have to have offsetting. Offsetting what? Dollar for dollar. And so the Speaker of the House recognizes that some things have to be defended, like our historic sites and our history. The history of Christianity, the history of Judaism. Our faith has to be defended. These are sites that cannot be recreated. And the people who are defending them. In the Bible, God calls Jews his chosen people. I'm not saying you have to embrace that idea or not. And so we actually have people who are saying, not, not, not unless we offset every dollar, the $14 billion with a dollar somewhere else, because look at this debt. Look at the debt. $300 trillion. $14 billion. Seems like a hell of a bargain to me, Mr. Producer, because they're doing all the fighting over there against Hamas and the rest. Yes, our soldiers are dying needlessly. What Biden has done is utterly unnecessary. But I'm not talking about that. Mark Levin. You're listening to the best of Mark Levin. Here are the names of the four Republicans who voted against providing munitions to Israel with a variety of excuses. Andrew Clyde of Georgia, Aaron Bean of Florida, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Lauren Boebert of Colorado, Eli Crane of Arizona, Warren Davidson of Ohio, Matt Gates of Florida, Bob Good of Virginia, Paul Gosar of Arizona, Marjorie Taylor Green of Georgia, Thomas Massey, boy, that guy's got issues now. What the hell happened to this guy? Of Kentucky, Corey Mills, who I'd endorsed in Florida, Ralph Norman, South Carolina, who I believe backs Nikki Haley, so figure that screwball out, and Chip Roy, unfortunately. Those are the 14, all the other re- members of the Freedom Caucus, all of them, voted the other way. Byron Donald's among them, Jim Jordan. Other great patriots. People remember these things. They remember these things. They understand the arguments. In a big scheme of things, these are excuses. It's the way I see it, Mr. Producer. Here's Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a pathological liar. Joe Biden has destroyed many people along his way to becoming president. Anything for power, anything for self-aggrandizement. Here's what he says today. This is written for him. And he reads this like a maniac. Like a truly unhinged individual. You know what's amazing to me is, you know, we study American history here. We study ancient history, world history. I've been behind this microphone longer than most, 21 years. I do this show differently than most. I provide more substance. I won't say than most. There's a lot of good guys out there. More substance on the issues that I think are important, and other people provide more substance on other issues. That's great, and that's good, and I love all these people. That's not my point. 
when I look at a guy like Joe Biden, immediately through my mind, you know, people collect baseball cards and they're thinking the cards or coins or stand. I'm immediately thinking of past presidents of American history. And I think to myself, what kind of Americans, what kind of people would support somebody like this to serve in the most powerful office in the world? Knowing full well that his dementia is significant, that he has always been a pathological liar, All he cares about is enriching himself in winning elections and empowering himself and his family. I told you, I met Joe Scarborough on a plane. Very friendly. I go up to him. We shake hands. We talk for a little while. Completely different guy. Joe, you know I'm telling you the truth here. Very likable. And then he goes on air. And he turns into sort of a white male Joy Reid. That's about right, don't you think, Mr. Producer? And he brings on these reprobates on MSNBC, brings on Sharpton. He used to trash Sharpton. He brings in all these leftists that you know in his heart of hearts he's uncomfortable with, but he still does it. And his defense of Biden, his attacks on Bibi Netanyahu... His attacks on the Republicans for not supporting this outrageously phony bill? He knows better than this. And not only him, he's just an example. Everybody knows better than this. You got to look at these world leaders. Some of them want to destroy us. Some of us want to beat us economically. Whatever. When you cringe and you watch Joe Biden... They're smiling. They're laughing. Our allies are saying, what the hell happened to the American people? Now, Joe Biden should take credit for the things he's doing in this country. Before he, they told us he fixed the border, that the border is secure. Now he's saying it's a disaster and it's Trump's fault and it's MAGA's fault. A pathological, serial liar. But so are the members of the media. They have all the sound bites. They have all the clips just like I do. Why don't they play them? Now listen to how ridiculous this is. Listen to how ridiculous this is. Cut three, Joe Biden today. Go. The result of all this hard work is a bipartisan agreement that represents the most fair, humane reforms in our immigration system in a long time. And the toughest set of reforms to secure the border ever. Now, all indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't even know it helps the country. He's not for it. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. So for the last 24 hours, he's done nothing, I'm told, but reach out to Republicans in the House and the Senate and threaten them and try to intimidate them to vote against this let me, proposal. Let me, uh, let me, let me, he can't listen to this repeatedly. 
Nobody needs to threaten the Republicans in the House or tell them anything. Anybody who can read and who actually took the time to read this bill knows what it is. It's a pile of S. Joe, you didn't read the bill. You don't have the foggiest idea what's in this bill. Neither do your speechwriters. And you just go, it's the most toughest set of reforms to secure the border ever. Now, why would he even sign something like that when he signed one executive order after another, up to 94, opening the border? Why would he sign the toughest reforms ever? Anybody believe that Schumer and McConnell negotiated the toughest reforms ever? Anybody believe Hakeem Jeffries and Nancy Pelosi support the toughest reforms ever? They take us for fools. Now, much of their base does consist of fools and Islamists and Marxists and all the rest of it. But still, again, he's the arsonist. He burns down the border and then pretends to have the solution. We have to face the fact that Joe Biden has a lot of mental issues, not just stage five dementia. And that's not a joke. It's not something to laugh about. But he is a pathological liar. He's always been a pathological liar. From his days in college and law school. About how he got arrested in South Africa marching for Mandela. Never happened. It never happened. That his son died in combat. No, he didn't. It was a horrific death. He had brain cancer, which is bad enough. The stories are legion and they're endless about how this man lies. But apparently that's okay. He lies about the economy. He lies about the border. He lies about Tara Reid, who escaped to Russia. They're more worried about Lauren Boebert's past marriage. Oh, story after story. But Tara Reid was threatened. She escapes to Russia, of all places. Maybe she met Tucker Carlson over there. What do you think, Mr. Bidiff? And nobody cares about her or her allegation. They can't get enough of Lauren uh, Boebert. So there he is lying. Now, if MSNBC were honest, they would tell you it's not true what he's saying. Joe, what's the problem? Why can't you lay it out? It's outrageous. And so it's Trump's fault. Trump's fault? So this is how the Svengalis and the Democrat Party want you to think. This is what they tell their base. And they think all of you are just as stupid as their base. Biden's hate for millions and millions of Americans, MAGA, make America great again. That should tell you a lot. Biden keeps mocking make America great again. Because he doesn't want to make America great again. He's destroying America. So this is the crap they put out. Then listen to this line. Cut five. Go. Republicans have to decide. For years they said they want to secure the border. Now they have the strongest border bill this country has ever seen. You're a liar. You POS. The strongest border bill this country's ever seen was offered by the Republicans to the Senate over the summer. H.R. 2. 
They wouldn't even take it up. They wouldn't even vote on it. Ladies and gentlemen, if we had the toughest border bill ever, wouldn't it be strange coming from Biden and his party? Wouldn't that be strange? Does that even make any sense on the surface level? No, of course not. If we had the toughest border bill in the country, we were told three weeks ago by Biden and his fellow mouthpieces that the border was secure. So why do we need the toughest border security bill in history? None of this makes sense, does it? Why do we have 10 million illegal aliens in this country? That's why I said... One million dollars. Money means everything to Biden because he doesn't earn it. He doesn't earn it, but he loves it with his estates, with his Corvette and all the rest of it. And he's been on the public dole his whole damn life. But he makes out very well. He's a multimillionaire. Funny thing about Democrats. Now, that said. There's a million dollars on the table right now. I'm betting Joe Biden that he has the power to begin securing the border tonight. We don't need the toughest, the toughest bill ever, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, you've got conservatives in the House and the Senate that didn't support Trump. Some of them supported DeSantis. They taking Trump's orders too? But because you support Donald Trump, You're taking his orders? You don't need orders. And notice on the other side, they never take orders. They don't take orders from Hakeem Jeffries. They don't take orders from Schumer. Meanwhile, they're the ones marching in line like good little totalitarians. Left, right, left, right. What did I used to compare them to, Mr. Producer? The Rockettes. They're the Rockettes, except the Rockettes are smart and attractive. The opposite of Democrats. But nonetheless, left leg up, right leg up, move left, move right. That's the Democrat Party. Like crows on a telephone wire. Or birds, whatever they are, on a telephone wire. They all voted against impeaching Mayorkas. Who told them to do that? They take their orders, you see, from... From Obama. It's the other thing totalitarian tyrants do. They create devil figures. Evil figures. And that's Trump. Trump and MAGA. Trump and MAGA. It's you, you schmuck. You. You destroyed the border. And then you tell us this is the most. And this is why they won't allow him to speak to anybody. A couple of simple questions. Joe, can you name three of the strongest ever Border policies in your bill? Fact, you might get something like this. Cut one, go. Right, right, right after I was elected, I went to a, what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. I was, in, I was in the south of England. And I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean, from France, looked at me. Okay, so you all know Mitterrand died in the 90s. We're talking about, and and now there's a whole new trope out there by the Democrats. Look at that. Look at that. Trump said Nancy Pelosi. He didn't mean Pelosi. She's just like Biden. 
What? We all misspeak from time to time or slur word here or there. We're not talking about from time to time. We're talking about a man who is riddled with dementia. A man who is a psychological liar. He has an entire lifetime of lying about things small and big. He's a character assassin. He has a lifetime serving in the Senate, assassinating good people who would come up for confirmation to try and destroy them, one after another. Mark Levin. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. I do want to say one thing directly to Anthony Blinken. Sue me. Sue me. You won't be able to sue me in Washington, D.C. You have to sue me in Florida. So you won't have a bunch of radical left-wing Obama Biden judges to help you. But sue me. Sue me. For libel. I've spent a lot of my life in the law, most of it. Litigation, the Constitution. And what that would allow me to do, America, is to pursue discovery. Every document, every text, every phone call, a myriad of depositions. Government information, cables, that apparently Congress is unable to obtain, but I would be able to obtain. I want to see it all. And I have the ability to finance it all. And I would spend every damn penny I have to expose this rat's nest that is destroying our country and our allies. Every damn penny. I would hire a phalanx of lawyers or every bit as aggressive and determined and brutal in the courtroom as I am. And I will get every shred of piece of information and I will counterclaim. I tell you what, I salivate over this. Do it. Do it. And I'm not done. I've discussed with you to some extent, and you've heard from others about Blinken the traitor. And there's so much more. But I can't do a Jerry Lewis telethon here. There's not enough time for that. But there's been a lot of writing about this Iranian high-level spy ring that was in Washington, D.C. What are you talking about, Mark? Isn't it amazing? Jake Tapper never covered it. Andrea Mitchell never covered it. The morning schmo and the schmoites, they don't cover it. They don't care. I care. New York Times, Maggie Haberman, it's all Trump all the time. Lee Smith is an intrepid investigative reporter. He writes for the tablet, among other places. Title of his piece from a little over a year ago, High-Level Iranian Spy Ring Busted in Washington, D.C. What? Never heard of this? 
What? It wasn't on cable TV? What? Wasn't on talk radio? What? The trail that leads from Tehran to D.C. passes directly through the offices of Robert Malley and the International Crisis Group. Who's Robert Malley? We've talked about this. Boyhood buddy of Antony Blinken. Malley's father was a terrorist sympathizer and a Marxist. And Blinken thought this should be our special envoy negotiating with Iran over our nuclear weapons. Folks, this is so consequential. It is so consequential. It's too late when we have historians and writers right after the fact. Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon. I have the report right in front of me. Right in front of me. The Institute for Science and International Security. A real group. Not a political group. And in this document that they just released. Just released. For the first time. They have a Geiger counter. On Iran and nukes. For the first time it says. We assess the situation as extreme danger. They bold it. They italicize it. And our Secretary of State is in the Middle East pounding away on Israel. Funding the Iranians. Don't tell me he's not a traitor. Now let's talk about the Aldra Hiss side of this thing. Smith writes, the Biden administration has now suspended Iran envoy. Robert Malley helped to fund, support, and direct an Iranian intelligence operation designed to influence the United States and allied governments, according to a trove of purloined Iranian government emails. Wow! Wow! How come that's not in the news? The emails, which were reported on by veteran Wall Street Journal correspondent Jay Solomon, writing in Semaphore, and by... Iran International, the London-based emigre opposition outlet, which is the most widely read independent news source inside Iran, were published last week, a little over a year ago, after being extensively verified over a period of several months by two outlets, both of those outlets. They showed that Robert Malley had helped to infiltrate an Iranian agent of influence named Ariana Tabatabai into most of the into the most sensitive positions in the US government. First at the State Department and now the Pentagon, where she's been serving as Chief of Staff for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, Christopher Meyer. How does this happen? I'm just reading the story. I'm just reading the story. Meyer told a congressional committee that the Defense Department is, quote, actively looking into whether all law and policy was properly followed and granting my chief of staff top-secret special compartmented information. This is the assistant secretary saying it, about his own chief of staff. The emails, which were exchanged over a period of several years between Iranian regime diplomats and analysts, show that Tabatabe was part of a regime propaganda unit set up in 2014 by the Iranian foreign ministry. The Iran Experts Initiative, IEI, tasked operatives drawn from Iranian diaspora communities to promote Iranian interests during the clerical regime's negotiations with the United States over its nuclear weapons program. Now, certainly Antony Blinken has read this by now, right? Blinken did this. 
Though several of the IEA operatives and others named in the emails have sought to portray themselves on social media as having engaged with the regime in their capacity as academic experts, or in order to promote better understanding between the U.S. and Iran, none has questioned the veracity of the emails, writes Lee Smith. And the contents of the emails are damning, showing a group of Iranian-American academics being recruited by the Iranian regime, meeting together in foreign countries to receive instructions from top regime officials, and pledging their personal loyalty to the regime, to the emails. They also show how the operatives use their Iranian heritage and Western academic positions to influence U.S. policy toward Iran, first as outside quote-unquote experts, and then from high-level U.S. government posts. Both inside and outside the government, the efforts of members of this circle were repeated, were repeatedly supported in advance by Robert Malley, who served as the U.S. government's chief interlocutor with Iran under both the Obama and the Biden administrations. And again, he was appointed to this envoy position by Antony Blinken. Malley is also the former head of the International Crisis Group, ICG, which directly paid and credentialed several key members of the regime's influence operation. The IEE, according to a 2014 email from one Iranian official to one of Iran's lead nuclear negotiators, quote, consisted of a core group of six to ten distinguished second-generation Iranians who've established affiliation with the leading international think tanks and academic institutions, mainly in Europe and the United States. The network was funded and supported by an Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps official, Mustafa Zarani, who was the point of contact between IEA operatives and Iran's then Foreign Minister, Zavad Zarif. I got your attention now, America? This is happening in the Biden administration. This is happening in the Blinken Department of State. It's not the first time. In our history. According to the correspondence, the IEI recruited several U.S. based analysts, including Tabatabe, Ali Vayez, and Dina Efskadiri, all of whom willingly accepted Iranian guidance. These Middle East experts were then subsequently hired, credentialed, supported, and funded by Robert Malley and the ICG, where he was president from January 2018 until January 2021, when he joined the Biden administration. Mali was also ICG's program director for Middle East and North Africa before the Obama administration tapped him in February 2014 to run negotiations for the Iran nuclear deal. All roads lead to Obama. Fundamental transformation of America, don't you know? Vaiz joined the ICG in 2012 and served as Mali's top deputy. Emails quoted in the stories show that even once in government, Mali directed Vaiz's actions at the ICG, sending him to Vienna, where the Iranian and U.S. teams had nuclear negotiations. Quote, following the order of his previous boss, Mali, Ali Vaiz will come to Vienna, Zarani reported, wrote Zarif in an April 3, 2014 email. Who from our group do you instruct to have a meeting with him? Vaiz wrote Zarif directly after the Iranian foreign minister expressed dissatisfaction with the ICG report in Iran. Quote, as an Iranian based on my national and patriotic duty, wrote Vaiz in an October 2014 email, I've not hesitated to help you in any way. 
for proposing to your excellency a public campaign against the notion of nuclear breakout to assisting your team and preparing reports on practical needs of Iran. These emails likely explain why Vaiz was unable to obtain a security clearance by our government in order to join Mali in the Biden administration. At the same time, they raised the question of why Mali sought to bring Vaiz into the State Department in the first place and why he remained in close operational contact with him even after he was denied a security clearance. So this guy's dealing with the Iranian regime. After the Iran deal, formerly known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, Obama's sellout to Iran, after it was finalized in July 2015, the ICG hired another IEI operative as a consultant, Adnan Tabatabi. Not to be confused with the Pentagon official, Ariane Tabatabi. Now, like Vaiz, Anand Tabatabi also pledged to dedicate his efforts to the Iranian regime. Sounds like Omar, who's pledged, who's pledged to represent Somalia in Congress. Another terrorist regime. Stick with me. In an email from 2014, as the agreement was being negotiated, Adnan Tabatabi wrote to Zarif about the foreign minister's meeting in Vienna with IEI operatives. Quote, as you will have noticed, <coughs> we are all very much willing to dedicate our capabilities and resources to jointly working on the improvement of Iran's foreign relations. Iran is our country, so we too, we too feel the need and responsibility to contribute our share. When I say we, I mean the very group you met. This is in our government and government-associated organizations. In early 2021, shortly before he joined the Biden administration, Robert Malley brought a third IEI operative, Dina Esfandiore, into the ICG. ICG did not respond by press time to Tablet's email requesting comment on its employees' role in an Iranian spy ring. February 2021, Malley hired Ariana Tabatabi to join his Iran team at the State Department. The emails document her clawing determination to prove her worth to the Iranian regime. Shortly after the 2014 meeting in Vienna, she sent Zarani a link to an article she'd co-authored with Esfandieri. Quote, as I mentioned last week, Dean and I wrote an article about the nuclear fuel of nuclear power plant at Bashir for the bulletin, which was published today. Our goal was to show what is said in the West, that Iran does not need more than 1,500 centrifuges, is wrong, and that Iran should not be expected to reduce the number of its centrifuges. Zarani then forwarded the email to Zarif, the Iranian. You getting the drift here, Mr. Producer? All this back and forth with the Iranian regime in the State Department? Under... Antony Blinken? In June 2014, Ariana Tabatabe emailed Zarani to say she'd been invited to conferences in Saudi Arabia and Israel and asked for his prior approval of her trips. I'd like to ask your opinion, too, to see if you think I should accept the invitation and go, she wrote. Zarani replied that Saudi Arabia is a good case, but the second case, Israel, is better to be avoided. She responded, thank you very much for your advice. I will take action regarding Saudi Arabia and keep you updated on the progress. There's no record of her traveling to Israel. A month later, she again wrote Zarani, asking for additional instructions. She'd been invited to join academic experts Gary Samori and William Toby to brief House members on the Foreign Relations, Armed Services, and Intelligence Committees. I'm scheduled to go to Congress to give a talk about the nuclear program, she wrote, 
uh, the IRGC IRGC, that's the enemy. That's the Iranian military. I will bother you in the coming days. I will be a little difficult since both Will and Gary do not have favorable views of Iran. Zarani forwarded the email to Zarif. Ariane Tab- uh, Tabatabi's correspondence with Zarani offers clear evidence that Mali's protege was an active participant, writes Lee Smith, in a covert Iranian influence campaign designed to shape U.S. government policy in order to serve the interests of the Iranian regime. Her request for guidance from top Iranian officials, which she appears to have faithfully followed, and her desire to harmonize her own words and actions with regime, regime, regime objectives, are hardly the behavior of an impartial academic or a U.S. public service. Servant, that is. Tabatabi's emails show her enthusiastically submitting to the control of top Iranian officials, who then guided her efforts to propagandize and collect intelligence on U.S. and allied officials in order to advance the interests of the Islamic Republic. Does Congress have no interest in this whatsoever? Have the, has the Democrat Party... Seriously? Seriously? Become the party of Iran? Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best. The best of Mark Levin. Wow. You're in exactly the right place at the right time. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. You know what's fascinating about this entire debate? And here it is in front of the Supreme Court. It's not like I hide my opinion. I have millions and millions of you. Same with Fox. Same with the Blaze. I specifically said on Fox, during Life, Liberty, and Levin, I have said behind this microphone, when dear colleagues were dismissing this entire movement on Section 3, 14th Amendment, as an outlier, it's no big deal, so forth and so on. Now they're all experts on it. That this needs to be blunted and needs to be stopped. And I laid out the reasons for it. I've posted some of them on our social media sites within the last hour. Laid out the case against the ballot removal arguments because I saw them coming from Lawrence Tribe, Michael Ludig, and other absolute unhinged obsessed morons. Former circuit judge, former Harvard professor. And it needed to be addressed, so I addressed it. All these arguments you're hearing now on TV and all these arguments you're hearing from the justices and so forth, you're familiar with all of them those of you who listen to this program, because we laid them out. Hook, line, and singer, sinker. Now this report comes out on Trump. So I'm thinking about this as I have in the past. Back in August of 2021, I made the case that Joe Biden should be removed under the 25th Amendment because of his dementia. I said it on Sean Hannity's program. I said specifically on Fox that the standards of the 25th Amendment were more than met. 4 p.m. today, Eastern Time, I posted it again that this report underscores 
that Joe Biden is an imbecile. I don't say that in a derogatory way. I say in a legal way. He's an imbecile. Special counsel met with him for a few hours, interviewed him, and concluded the same thing. He didn't know when he was vice president or when the vice presidency ended. He didn't know what year his son passed away. The man is in stage five dementia. As told you before, there's seven stages. He's in stage five. So I post that the 25th Amendment should be used. So one of our friends, one of our hosts, two hours later or so, waves around the Constitution, talks about the 25th Amendment. I don't want a pat on the back. I'm just telling you folks, you're in the right place at the right time. You're in the right place at the right time. The next battle is going to be over Section 4 of the 14th Amendment when it comes down to spending. We have fought that battle before, and we will fight it again. And then suddenly, everybody will find Section 4 of the 14th Amendment and debate it and litigate it. What I do, not just for a career, is I study this document like few have. Every damn word, every damn syllable. Not because I don't know it, but because the enemies of this republic who've coalesced into the Democrat Party are trying to undo every syllable, every word, every sentence in the document. So we have to be prepared to defend it. I don't just come along as a legal analyst and start commenting on things that are happening. I'm telling you what they're doing and that they're coming. And that's what they're going to do. This 25th Amendment issue immediately came to my mind when I started reading this report. Now what the prosecutor and his office have done is not find anything novel or new. But they have swagger because of who they are and what they are that others don't. It's now officially in a report sent to Congress, sent to the Department of Justice that the whole world can read. They went in an interview, Joe Biden, and they had to come out of there stunned. They didn't know when his vice presidency ended. He didn't know when his son died. He couldn't remember anything. Now, some who play act, that would be rope dope But that's not rope dope when you're in stage five dementia. The Democrats today, the media today, same thing, are very upset by this report. But you should be furious for several reasons. Number one, they have every intention of trying to nominate a man to the presidency who should be anywhere near the grounds of the White House. He is a sick man. Making life and death decisions for our country, for other countries like Israel, he is a sick man. And I said this to you either earlier this week or last week. And it's not the first time. The idea that his wife, the idea that his staff, the idea that his friends, the idea that the media and the Democrat Party and Joe Scarborough and his ilk will continue to promote this man, continue to try and protect him, continue to lie to their audiences, 
to their readers, to the American people. Oh, he's sharp. He's sharp as can be. The same way they lie about the border. The border's secure. Oh, it's not secure. So it's actually the fault of the Republicans. If they would just pass our law. The question I have for the rest of America. How much longer are you going to put up with this? The 25th Amendment. I want to congratulate those, the host who, uh, who reads my site. They all should read it, quite frankly. Here's the 25th Amendment, Section 1. In case of the removal of the president from office or his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president. Section 2. Whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. So Gerald Ford became president. Section 3. Whenever the president transmits to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president as acting president. Now, if Joe Biden were a patriot, if his wife was a loving wife and patriot, she would pressure him, and he would tell the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem of the Senate that he's unfit to serve. But he's running for re-election with the full support of his party and the media. Section 4. Whenever the vice president, this is important, and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments, or the cabinet secretaries, or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, it is not, transmit to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House the written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. Not one cabinet secretary has said so. The vice president hasn't. And you have this Hollywood uh, stick figure, Gruesome Newsom, who's running around telling the American people Joe Biden is the smartest, swiftest, most accomplished president in American history. Because he is a lousy, good-for-nothing political hack. Every damn cabinet officer that serves this president knows exactly what's going on. The vice president does. Every media outlet knows exactly the same thing. Whenever the vice president, a majority of either the principal officers, so you need Kamala Harris and a majority of the cabinet. Thereafter, when the president transmits to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House, his written declaration that no inability exists, so the president says, wait a minute. I'm the brightest guy to ever serve here. In fact, I'm running for re-election. Despite the vice president and a majority of the cabinet saying, I think we have a problem here. What happens? He shall resume the powers and duties of his office unless the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments 
its vice president, majority of the cabinet, transmit within four days to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. So the vice president and majority of the cabinet, they tell the Senate president and they tell the Speaker of the House, this guy, he's not cutting it. We're sorry. I, Kamala, need to step in. I'll deal with that in a minute. President says, wait a minute, I'm quite capable of doing this job. I'll send my own letter. Now, of an impasse. Then the vice president and majority of the cabinet must yet again write the Senate president and the Speaker of the House and say, uh, he's wrong. And they have to do it within four days of the president writing it. Their written declaration has to state the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Thereupon, Congress shall decide the issue. Assembling with 48 hours for that purpose, if not in session, if the Congress within 21 days after receipt of the latter written declaration, or if Congress is not in session, within 21 days after Congress is required to assemble, determines by two-thirds vote of both houses the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, so it takes a two-thirds vote of both houses, the vice president shall continue to discharge the same as acting president. And if they fail, the president continues his duties. Follow that, Mr. Producer? But none of this has been triggered. None of it. So the 25th Amendment to the Democrats is a dead letter because all they care about is power. Power. This is why one of the lead slip-and-fall ambulance-chasing lawyers in this case for Joe Biden has said it was inappropriate for the special counsel to make these remarks. No, it's the most appropriate thing he could have done. Because Joe Biden has been hiding like a veal calf. No access to him. Media has no real access to him unless it's a slobbering interview by Joe Scarborough or somebody like that. No questions, no speeches, no interviews, unless the speech is written, it's a friendly audience, mumbles through it, and they laugh like clapping seals. We all know this to be true, all of us. And he's doing very dangerous things, the open borders. Now he's siding with Hamas against Israel. You know what he decided today? Blinken's put it out. Kirby's put it out. The spokes idiot at the Department of Defense have all said the same thing. Israel has one last section to defeat Hamas. It's where the Hamas leaders are. It's where the remaining Hamas terrorists are. They're gearing up to take them on, to destroy them. And Biden and Blinken have given the order, no, we do not support you doing this. It's come out of the Defense Department, the State Department, the National Security Council, the Office of the White House, and everybody. Do not defeat Hamas. That's what they're saying. Today. Today. This document should trigger extensive discussion about the 25th Amendment. All over the country, all over the media. The host who waved it around today. I don't expect him or her. I'm not going to die for the person. To explain where she or he originally saw it. But that's okay. It needs to expand on talk radio. On Fox. 
in any other legitimate news platform, of which there are very few.